Welcome to the Learning Project Podcast. This show features conversations with education innovators from across the world. It's hosted by a group of friends who met at the Harvard Graduate School of Education during the pandemic. And it's based on the premise that new technologies combined with insights from learning science have the potential to make schooling and learning activities better than they've ever been. Welcome to the Learning Project Podcast. I'm Lydia Tsao. Today, I'm co-hosting with Fenton Hughes. And the two of us are honored to be speaking with Bruno Branco today. And to start, let me just tell you a little bit about, about Bruno. He is a serial entrepreneur who has founded and worked with some of Brazil's leading ed tech companies, including a major e-learning company in the adult test prep space and an ed tech software startup used by over 700 schools throughout Brazil. Currently, Bruno is the CEO of the Great Schools Platform, the world's first K-12 education venture builder, which we'll hopefully get to talk more about today. And Bruno is a graduate of Harvard University where he completed a master's degree in education. So Bruno, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Fent and Lydia, it's a pleasure. So Bruno, before we start, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself to be an education entrepreneur. Oh my gosh, that's such a long story. I'll try to make it short. So my mom was a public school teacher and that's where it all starts, right? I remember as a kid during the weekends when she had to, you know, go through all these tests and essays and I would just sit there because it was, you know, a busy schedule for her at school and it was, you know, some quality time we could have together during the weekend. And when I was in high school, I started in Brazil studying, I started working at the school. I, 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 I studied just, you know, in exchange for an internship. And after that, I started college. And then in college, I got to, into this internship in Brazilian company that was in the very early stages, adult distance learning. So in the early 2005, 2006, yeah, and that's how I started. This company was really successful for the first couple of years I worked there. And then because of different reasons, it started you know, to do not so well, and then it almost went bankrupt. And I was really young at the time uh, working at this company. And, and you know, all this change was, in the end, a massive opportunity. There was a... a, a, a technology shift going on in the background. So cloud computing was on its early stages as well. And then after shifting some of the company's content to the cloud and launching some e-learning initiatives, I ended up becoming the executive director at the company. And I was about, you know, 20, 25-ish. And that sort of gave me the confidence to later start my, my own startup. So you had this great experience early on, which moved you from one startup to another startup, and now you've founded multiple companies. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the Great Schools platform. Great. So yeah, after this experience I just talked about, I ended up you know, founding different ed techs. And uh, you know, my background was in education and technology as an entrepreneur. And then in 2019, after I was working for a company that ended up, you know, listing on the stock exchange and all these, all these things that entrepreneurs have in mind that they want to do one day. And, you know, I, I started asking myself, you know, where am I going from here? And, you know, this sense of purpose really started to kick in. And I realized that I, you know, I've never 
actually worked in the school. I was working with schools for almost you know, 12 years at the time. So then with, uh, with a few partners, we founded a great schools platform. And it, it, it is a fairly unusual business model in that you know, entrepreneurs usually pick either a more traditional approach to, 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 to business models. And then of course, managing schools is considered traditional in that regard, or they pick, you know, a more tech, techish approach. And, you know, there's all this venture capital industry and, and things we read about all the time. And, and the great schools platform is kind of a hybrid model, right? So we start out buying schools in Brazil. There are many private schools and, and private schools today, they enroll nearly 20% of Brazilian students in K-12 education. So it's, it's, a, it's a fairly big niche. And there, there are private schools of all sorts, right? So private schools catering for at, you know, very, very, very low tuition points and all the way up to you know, very, very high tuition points. So we thought there was an opportunity with the background that me and my partners to try and, you know, and, and help schools be a little bit more innovative in, in, in Brazil. And that's why we started investing in schools. But then this is the first part of, of the model, right? After a while, the idea is that as we learn from these schools, right? So we have the schools at the center of the business model. As we learn from them and as they learn from each other, we start identifying possibilities, you know, that can scale up as ed tech initiatives. And that's the second part of the business model. So we, transi we transition for, from a more traditional approach to a more innovative approach within the same company. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of technology that plays in your setting? As you mentioned earlier, you start with schools learning from each other and then then they transition to a more like a tech oriented model so just tell us more about this yeah sure yeah so for us first of all we are first and foremost an education company right technology will always be a tool it's increasingly an important tool but it's nonetheless a, a tool right yeah so there are many opportunities i guess in today's world for technology to make to help schools make an impact in teaching and learning right so we're really focused on this instructional core uh, or this learning core when we talk about education technology many ed tech companies nowadays they operate at what I consider like the fringes of the school system, right? So we have all kinds of applications that are useful. They're concerned with, you know, back office management, or uh, they're concerned with uh, sometimes communication or, you know, different apps. They're useful, even content, but, but they don't necessarily, you know, make an impact or, or change things at the learning core, right? And it's, it's difficult to do this. So that's why I, I think we need to have this long-term approach, you know, and make sure that we have, you know, all the different stakeholders in the same room and that we're learning with each other with a positive, you know, learning culture and a transparent learning culture over time to make sure that we are making, you know, an impact in the learning course. So, yeah. So basically to, at the start, it's just, you know, schools talking with schools, right? So school founders and school principals, they can be, you know, very, they can be absorbed by the day-to-day -day realities of their schools, right? So I, 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 some schools, some school founders, when they found their schools, they have this ideal of, you know, changing the world and, you know, making some innovative pedagogy happen. And then 
the next day he founds a school, it's all about, you know, accounts payable, accounts receivable, taxes, and, you know, licenses, and, you know, real estate, and principals might get, you know, involved too much in this administrative, bureaucratic side of business. And then the instructional core is always, you know, set to the, to, to the side. And then when we, we, we notice that when we go to meetings and, you know, there are many strategic things that are being discussed, except the instructional core, except how our initiatives make an impact in the classroom. Okay? And so that's the first thing we try to change. So we, 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 we've built what we call the shared services central. And then so all the back office administrative work of the schools is centralized, is integrated in this shared services central. And the effect that that has on schools is first on the principals over, you know, uh, there's a transition period of one or to three months. And then the principal, all of a sudden, he's able to really focus on the instructional core and the education activities, you know, on leading the, the education people inside a school. And then, so the second step to that, this principal, he might've been like 10, 20 years inside the same school. He's very knowledgeable about his school community, but it always helps if you can learn from people who are doing things differently, who have a different perspective, who, you know, have a diverse point of view. So then because we invest in such a diverse community of schools, we, 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 we like to have these school leaders sit together and learn from each other because now they have a bit more time to do it, right? Wow. So yeah, this is really interesting. It sounds like you guys are going out there and buying schools. Do you buy the full school or does the, the owner maintain some ownership? It really owner? varies. We're, we, we usually own the school in the sense that we have the control or the majority of the shares of the school. But, you know, we love to work alongside talented, you know, professionals and educators. So it's really open in some schools, you know, the, the, the school the founder or principal or owner, he remains as a partner and he will remain on the long run. In other schools for personal reasons, the principal is more interested in retiring or leaving. And then we, then we, we own the full school. Okay. And then as the, as they join into your network, they first of all, get access to this shared services experience so they don't have to worry as much about all the accounts payable, all that back office stuff. And then they also join this community of, well, community of practice really, where they're able to learn and grow from learning from their peers. And you guys, it sounds like, are, are able to do experiments or provide guidance working alongside them to improve this learning core. Is that a good summary? That's a good summary, yes. And then there's a lot of rapid cycle learning, a lot of, you know, entrepreneurship driven by hypothesis and testing and trying to understand within our own communities what works and what doesn't. So Bruno, you really emphasize the learning core as you speak about the network of the schools. Can you tell us a little bit about how learning looks like in your setting? Oh, yes, it can look, you know, very different from one place to the other. So this, the, we're very young as a company. And, you know, we in the beginning, one, one promise that we made ourselves as, as founders was that we would deeply, deeply respect the communities that we were privileged to now be a part of and that we would first strive to really learn from what was going on there before we tried to propose anything new, right? So 
we're still in this very initial phase. So there's, as I said, a lot of meetings, a lot of listening. Yeah. So we're present in seven states today with 20 different schools. Some schools are very progressive. They're into project-based learning. You walk into a school, you see kind of a co-working for kids. And it's very different from, you know, what what the kind of school that I grew up in. In other schools, they're more traditional. They're in communities that value this tradition. So you will see more direct instruction. You will see sometimes an emphasis on testing. And we try to be really not judgmental. I have my personal preferences. I, you know, I, I, I was in the master's studying a lot about school models. So, but it doesn't mean that my personal preferences need to become you know, the preferences of a community of, I don't know, a thousand parents, right? Who am I, right? I, I, and, and I believe that if we preserve these diversity, th these diverse points of view, everyone can, can learn, right? So the school that is more traditional might learn from the school that is more progressive, you know, to integrate PBL and in some of its practice, even if it does not shift to become a project-based school, right? And the school that is, that you know, more oriented towards PBL might learn from the more traditional setting, for instance, how to integrate some, you know, fine-grained uh, cognitive science moves, cognitive, cognitive research-inspired moves into the instruction for, because, you know, kids learn differently, as we know, and some kids might need some more scaffolding, some more structure in some, in certain contexts, right? So I really believe that this diverse community is the most powerful thing we've built and in a great schools platform. And then our, our product development team and, you know, people who want to make this, want to look for opportunities that can scale beyond their own schools. I guess they, they have a very rich opportunity of learning from, from the schools in the first place. I love that the schools and the communities are allowed to evolve at their own pace and in the direction they want to evolve. That seems unusual. I heard about one of your, one of the subsets of schools that, that you operate called hub schools, I believe. And if I, if I'm not mistaken, that is very, very project-based. Could you tell us a little bit about, about the hub school set, set up? Yes. And thanks for asking that. that. That's, I guess that's a great story. So as I said, at, at some point after learning from the schools or while learning from the schools, right, we, we, we we sort of identify some opportunities that might scale beyond the, the, the grade schools platform. And I guess hub learning was the first of these opportunities. Um, so back in 2018, an entrepreneur in Brazil founded uh, a project-based learning school, which is, you know, not very different from a story that we might see, you know, every day in different cities. But what was unusual was that this school was not in a major urban center, right? So it was in the city, in the countryside of Brazil. And also it was fairly small. It was designed for, you know, something between 70 and 140 uh, kids, which for Brazil is a small school, right? So in the grade schools platform, just as a comparison, schools are usually around thousand students or more, right? Uh, so we first approached the school and, and, you know, our first reaction was, uh, I don't know if, if this, you know, as if this works, right? So is there demand for such an innovative approach in the countryside and at the same time like can you can the school be you know self-sustainable at you know such a small scale and then we when we visited the school we were actually fascinated by what we saw and I mean he ended up building a second school in the same city a year later because demand was really on the high point and kids were really really happy with the kind of education they were 
uh, receiving teachers were really purposeful and involved and you know they shared this purpose of for the first time in their career uh, in a, having the opportunity to you know deliver and work with the pedagogy that they actually believed in. So we were kind of, you know, we, we started sharing those purposes too. And we wanted to to see if we could, you know, help the hub school impact other communities, right? So if we could extend that impact, because I, I think Brazil, Latin America, and other countries in the world desperately need it, right? And then, so we built this MVP, which is the minimum viable product and the entrepreneurship jargon to test if there would be demand in major centers or in other cities and also if we could scale the school keeping you know its core attributes and its essence and with the help of technology if we could make the experience even more impactful for students and teachers and then yeah in the beginning of the year we ended up opening three new schools one in sao paulo one in rio and one in belo horizonte which are the major cities in brazil and they were all very successful so now there are currently six hub schools operating in Brazil. And that was our MVP, right? So we founded an organization called the Hub Learning. And this organization is meant to be a global organization. So our next step is making this initiative international. So we're planning new schools in different places of the world in the, in the following two or three years. That's so exciting. I, I really enjoy the diversity within your platform, as well as this progressive model of learning and the potential for scalability. Bruno, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about in terms of like scaling, what does it mean to scale school and like a, a pedagogical model like PBL? There are many challenges. So some of them on the, you know, down to earth business side of things and especially on the pedagogical educational side of things, right? So talking about, you know, the, the, the business side of things, one challenge is, you know, the building, right? So schools, they're big on real estate usually, right? And, you know, some parents might even associate the quality of the real estate with the quality of education, which, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. I wish that we could just build a beautiful business, a beautiful building, and then the school would, you know, do, be able to, do, to, you know, build great educational experiences for, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. It's way, way tougher. But so if you, if you plan to scale schools and you need, you know, big real estate, then, I mean, it's, it's not going to scale, right? There's a lot of capital involved. There's a lot of, you know, operations involved. You get stuck in, you know, retrofits and refurbishments and maintenance over months. But at the same time, you know, building is such an important part of the, of the learning experience, right? So the first thing, thinking about the Hub School, and because it's a project that is meant to scale globally, the first thing we asked parents, what, why were they choosing to enroll their kids in, in Hub School? And to our surprise, real estate was not among the top 10 criteria, right? And we saw that as an opportunity. So what parents were telling us, like, if you have a smaller building or if, it, if it's not as fancy or not as expensive, first of all, that means more accessible tuition, right? So you, you can have a more diverse community welcome to the school. And that has a serious impact on the quality of education, right? Second of all, it's more scalable. You can have more schools. And then because it's smaller, you have this, you know, small community feel, which is really important for the education experience as well. So learning in a small community, in a small school, and at the same time, knowing that that school is part of a larger global network, and then you can access the resources of this larger global network and interact with schools 
from different places in the world, that's really rich, right? So first of all is, you know, cutting down real estate expenses and making the building secondary to the pedagogical model, which, I mean, it was always meant to be, right? You need to have the learning core at the, at the center, at the core, right? So I guess the second aspect of it is thinking about teacher professional development, right? So there are not many centers of excellence around the world that are able to teach project-based learning in, in, in a way that, you know, really works at, at, the, at the school level, right? Sometimes it's very theoretical. Sometimes it's very elitist and only a few teachers can access it. So one thing that doesn't work is when schools or programs think of professional development as this like week-long seminar or uh, and nowadays webinar or that, you know, teachers will attend and then the next week, you know, they've completely shifted the way they teach and, you know, they're now progressive teachers or they're now teachers who can, you know, deliver this kind of innovative pedagogy. It doesn't work like that. So for us, professional development needs to be part of everyday activities. So we, from the assumption that in the school, every one is a learner, some learners are teachers other learners are students, right? So while students are, are learning, you know, different subjects and, you know, and much more than subjects, they're learning social, emotional intelligence, they're, no, they're learning about their own identities, they're building their own identities. Teachers are, are also doing that and they're especially focused on learning how to teach, right? How, how to, to, to really make a difference in the classroom and beyond. And so the way we do that is with some technology we encourage teachers to be very metacognitive about their own practice, right? So as they build their projects, there is this platform that scaffolds them with the, with the help of some artificial intelligence, scaffolds them uh, to think about their practice. And then we're actually concerned at what goes on in the teacher's mind, right? Because if we are able to help this teacher think about his practice in a better way, then he is learning and then his practice will improve and then all the school community will benefit. So I guess one central aspect of scaling is teacher professional development and that I, I guess technology can make a huge impact on that by transforming it into a day-to-day -to, -day to, I guess, Fent used the term community of practice early on. And then I also think that there are additional affordances that technology brings to the table nowadays that we, you know, we couldn't access them like a decade ago. So for instance, if we have a global network of schools, why do we have to think of a school as a place? So why can't the school be the network, right? So if you're doing a project in, say, the, I don't know, Wyoming, and then, you know, you have a, a project peer that is in Brazil, or maybe he is in Indonesia or Vietnam, and, you know, we're all concerned about, I don't know, some aspect of science or just to pick a topic, public transportation, right? And public transportation will look so different in these different settings, right? Why can't students like get on the plane and visit those places during the learning experience, right? So for one, today, it's really expensive. But I mean, it's not really expensive because of the air transportation, right? What's really expensive is, you know, accommodation and, uh, you know, room and board and all the logistics that goes into, you know, being abroad and who's going to host this child. And so in this, in, a, in this network of schools that, you know, is built up out of small communities and when the help with technology, 
we can empower these communities to be co-hosts of their own children, right? So we dream of a day when our, our, our students and teachers will be able to access learning experiences worldwide on a more regular pace, paying only for the air ticket, right? Which in, in, in Brazil, they can pay for an installment, so on the long run. And then, you know, everything else is sorted out by the own community and with the, with the use of technology to build a truly global community that can experience these different things. Oh, what a fascinating vision. I, I love the, the way that you're talking about distributing the classroom across, across oh, the whole world. And I also like how you're talking about teachers and learners adopting different roles and maybe the teacher playing, well, as you say with professional development, the teacher playing an ongoing learner role, but also the teacher sometimes stepping back, it sounds like, from teaching is telling and, and more acting like a coach or a consultant as the learner is taking more ownership for his or her own learning. My question with that new teaching model and the new roles in the classroom is, I imagine that's hard to sustain because a lot of us grew up in a system where, you know, we experience teaching as telling. And it's also very rewarding as a teacher to be the one who, at least I, I enjoy sometimes knowing the answer and, and giving that great explanation. And so how do you help your teachers sustain and I guess kind of cultivate this new classroom dynamic? So I would say it's new for some of the teachers. It's not new for all of them. And then, I mean, again, we go back to the community. So the, the community is the main, you know, scaffold for this process to unfold, right? So yeah, I, I, I think that the, we, we would be surprised of, you know, how much of what we do is actually based on constraints from the work environment and from what you know scholars called the grammar of schooling. So things that happen in school and no one actually really knows why or remembers why they were you know put to work in the first place. So things like you know uh, fifty minute you know classes and the way we test and you know the way we divide. Uh, the subjects in, in the curriculum, the assumptions that are in the, in the formal curriculum of the school. We talked about the building already, right? So when, as an organization, you're able to recreate these rules from scratch, or al almost from scratch, right? There are things that are really worth keeping. But when you're able to recreate most of these things, or at least reorganize them from scratch, you'd be surprised on the impact that that has over a community, right? It's very empowering. So people feel that they can really do their best, right? I, I like to think that if we were able to really implement all the high-end educational research that's been going on over the past 30 years, but really, really make it happen in schools and not just implement, you know, take it from a textbook and put it into practice, but actually change it evolve it, learn from it, you know, I guess we would have, you know, the most innovative school in, in the world. So it's not necessarily about doing things that no one knows about. It's more about doing things that a lot of people know about, but they're sometimes not actually able 
to put it to work because of you know different organizational and cultural constraints. So I guess first of all, our responsibility in, in, hub, in hub learning is to, you know, to, to untie some of these, undo some of these constraints. So I think of it more like unbuilding in the beginning than actually building. And then making sure you have the right culture, the right leadership, the right incentives, you know, the right freedom, the right autonomy for people to, you know, to bring their best to school every day. That's fantastic. And I just, as I'm hearing this conversation, I just, the, the role that the, your platform plays become clearer and clearer to me. You, what you're really doing is really to remove the constraints that are currently now imposed on teachers, on learning, on the leadership and create this ideal environment where teacher and student can be their best. And, and you're really empowering, not just empowering the, the players in the school, but also really helping them to scaffolding the environment for them to teach and learn the best. My question now is, I'm gonna bring the, 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 the assessment in because a lot of learning and teaching is driven by assessment. So how does assessment look like in your schools? I know your schools are very diverse, but how do you kind of think about assessment and yeah. Yeah, as you said, schools are very diverse and I guess assessment is such a part of, you know, the culture in different places and they mean different things for different communities. And first of all, we try to respect that. Uh, at the same time, I, I guess like in, in, in the US, there's this really problematic accountability based on assessment culture that research has shown uh, not only doesn't work, but you know, it has the potential to really bring a lot of harm to school communities, right? Assess I guess the, the problem is not the assessment itself, right? The problem is how human beings use their results and the kind of inferences that we make out of them. So we think that because, you know, a child or even a sat down for an hour or so and answered, you know, 10 questions on a piece of paper, then we can make all these kinds of assumptions. And, you know, we can make some assumptions. They're much more modest than we maybe would, would like them to be. And then it becomes very dangerous when we start, you know, making assumptions that are not valid in in a, in a way, you know, that is not granted in a way that is scientific, right? And I guess that's when it becomes dangerous. And then uh, some of these assumptions might really affect students and teachers' identities. We might make assumptions that a yeah, teacher is good or isn't good because of the scores that, you know, children have on, on, on a test. So we're really cautious of not exactly assessing, but on how we use the results of assessment and also the kind of assumptions that we make about assessments. And I guess another important topic here is like how much energy we spend on assessing kids versus the benefits that we get from it, right? So I like in Reggio Emilia, which is, you know, this, this uh, place in Italy with a really progressive school model since the 1920s or 30s, they teach us that the word assessment comes from the Latin assidere, right? And assidere means sitting by the side of someone, right? And this teaches us that assessment is a whole process, right? It's actually uh, a process that is interactive. It's a process that is meant to 
build learning and it's a process that involves scaffolding so it's a core component of the learning experience so it shouldn't be only regarded as the end point so we we think of assessments in our culture usually as evaluation right as putting a value on someone and i think that is very limiting of the affordances of assessment and it can be very dangerous for the school culture and for the learning experiences and again for the instructional core bruno i would love if you could tell us about some challenges you're experiencing or, or some problems that you haven't quite found solutions for especially as regards hub the hub school because it seems like like from what you said it sounds like that's ready to take on the world but i'm sure there are some difficult to resolve challenges that you're coming across we'd love to hear about those oh yes there are many many challenges so as as i said we're, we i mean we just you ju we just implemented our mvp so there's a lot there is under construction right and of course we have to learn from this process and it can change a lot as it unfolds so it's far from ready I don't think there's going to be one day that we're going to look at it and say, oh, this is all ready. But yeah, there's there's a lot to learn. So uh, so diversity is really, really a great asset of ours. And at the same time, sometimes, you know, it can it can feel very uncomfortable sometimes because when you are really willing to include different voices in, in the conversation, they might not speak exactly what you're expecting, right? And, and then this process can be very frustrating for some people. So I guess one major challenge is building the, the culture, both in the Great Schools platform and in Hub Learning, where people feel that diversity is a real asset to our learning and to our development, and they are willing to include different voices in a conversation. So this is a major challenge. I guess we're in the right direction, but it's built every day with small actions, right? So it requires a lot of a lot of action, a lot of you know being present, a lot of interaction. I guess that's a, a major challenge, not only for us, but for many organizations nowadays. I guess in our conversation here, we touched upon some topics on, you know, trying to make some changes in, in, in you know, school practices, even if it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean becoming a, you know, very innovative school, but, you know, every organization needs change, right, to go, to go forward. And, and implementing change in schools can be a real challenge because of many of those, you know, grammar of schooling issues that we were talking about. So if, you, if you're constrained by a 50 minutes, you know, class schedule, or if you're constrained by, you know, the rules of a state testing system, how can you actually uh, make significant changes and still, you know, be able to fit into that kind of mold? So that is a challenge that requires a lot of creativity from our educators and from our community. And then also, I guess a great challenge is how do you use technology, again, in a way that is impactful and significant for the instructional core, because there's a lot of hype around, you know, using technology in education. And I'm, I'm a really a true believer of using technology in education. I just think that we need to move beyond the hype. And, and you know, with the kind of communities that we have today in the Great Schools platform, it's not just that you have an idea and then, you know, it's going to change everything. You know, people don't buy it. I mean, you need to go really deep because after all, we're talking about the education of our children, right? And no one wants to fool around with that. So it can be challenging to, you know, 
have the right balance between preserving what we know is working in a way and moving towards things that we also know might might be better or at least different or at least innovative and then you know making that change so i guess those are our major challenges that we have today and i would add that living in the kind of polarized politically polarized world that many of us live today is another challenge right because i was talking about different views and diversity and learning and then when you have that set over a background of you know of political polarization it can it can become very very difficult and at at the same time i think that it only increases the need and the urgency for us as educators to build communities that want to change this, that want to include different voices, and that think that the way forward is to, you know, have everyone in the same room learning from each other and expressing their points of view in a way that we can learn from and live together peacefully. I really love how you are thinking about education as a holistic, in a holistic way, not just thinking about education in the classroom, but also about ultimately we want to all live together. And um, so, and I also really enjoy how you thinking about challenging in such clear headed and practical way, not just like, because when we talk about education and innovation, sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap of like, everything just looks so idealized. And so I, I really enjoyed this conversation. And my one last question is, since you're such, you have such great expertise in the intersection of education and entrepreneurship, what advice would you give to people who want to set up their own schools or their own learning spaces? Great. So the first advice is do it, right? A lot of us spend such a long time thinking if it's worth it or if it's not. It's very challenging. It might be scary. And I mean, the advice is do it. I mean, take the necessary steps, you know, to plan and to, and to you know, set things right. Don't just throw yourself out of the window, but also don't wait too long, right? The world is happening now and it needs you, right? We need better schools. We need more educators down there on the field with our children, making an impact, making a difference. And I would, I guess the second piece of advice is surround yourself with the most capable, outstanding, inspiring human beings you might possibly be able to, right? It's very, school is all about community. It's very, very difficult to do anything impactful alone. So don't, don't, I mean, don't believe only in your vision, have people that are different from you, challenge your vision and have them right beside you building this together. Bruno, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and telling us about your experiences with the Great Schools Platform, Hub Learning. It's really insightful to look into your world and see it, the, not just what you're doing, but the way you're doing it in a way that sort of, it sounds like you've just optimized things for learning, which makes sense for people that are running a school, but it's unusual since schools haven't been learning, haven't been changing as rapidly as the rest of society. I think if we look over the last 150, 200 years. So 
our final question is actually zooming out from all of this and talking about you personally. Wondering if you could share what has been an impactful learning experience for you personally? Thinking, thinking back on your life, the experiences that have sort of sculpted who you are and how you approach the world, can you just share something, an experience that, that was meaningful for you, that this is sort of just a moment to reflect and yeah, sort of think with gratitude about what's brought you to the point you're at today? Oh, there are so many, yeah. It's difficult to, to choose because we're, we're actually, right, a, re a reflection from all these experiences that we, we've lived and the people that have influenced us uh, along the way. Well, I guess there is, there is an, an experience that I was very privileged to, to be able to, to live and it, it's in the contrasts of two different systems. So, as I said, I grew up attending public schools in Brazil. And then when, you know, I used to see on television or, you know, read somewhere that there were these amazing, outstanding schools all over, you know, these different exotic places, right, that were very far away from my reality. So, you know, the best schools in the world were in Finland, or maybe they were in Singapore and places that I, at that point, you know, never even imagined one day visiting. And then I grew up, I went to college and after, uh, you know, in a, in a master's program and, and I had the opportunity to study in, in Harvard. And of course that is, you know, for, for a son of a public school teacher in Brazil, that's a major, you know, thing. But I guess the contrasts of, you know, understanding that some people are privileged enough to have that kind of education that we were accessing in Harvard throughout their lives, right? Since preschool education, not exactly the, you know, adapted to, you know, the different age ranges and, you know, developmental stages, but well, there are some people in this world that are privileged enough to attend really, really good schools from a very early age. And there are at the, at the same time, you know, a lot of my friends from childhood, they never, you know, dreamt of having different experience from the one they were having. And I guess this contrast and, you know, the privilege to, to, to see, you know, both sides of, of, this, of, the, of, of this reality has, I guess, infused me with purpose to maybe one day make, you know, being able to attend the best school in the world, something more day-to-day -day for increasingly more people and more and more places, right? So why not use, you know, all the world's resources and knowledge and technology and, you know, people's wills and will and purpose to make the best school in the world available everywhere for everyone. I'm so deeply moved by this very personal accounts of your life and the contrast of different reality that you experienced. And I think you are really, really well positioned to make this change as you are navigating these different realities and make the best education accessible to everyone. I'm like really deeply moved by what you just said. So I'm now gonna pass to Fent. <laughs> yeah, we just wanna thank you for your time, Bruno and of course, your work. And as we all know, this is 
this is the sort of thing that change comes slowly, but we, yeah, we really just want to thank you for the work that you're doing and the educators that you are empowering, the families that you're affecting. So uh, we actually hope to speak with you again sometime because I have so many more questions now about like, more questions about the scalability. How do you do an MVP of a school? So we'll have to swing back as we keep doing more episodes and learn more from you and, and your work. That'd be a pleasure. I'm, I love to talk about education and I'm always, always available. And our schools are open right, to, to you guys and to whoever is listening. If, I mean, if you, if you think you can help and if you think you can learn where, I mean, we'd, I'd love to connect. Great. And maybe that's a good way to finish. Is there anywhere people can find you or if they want to learn more about uh, the Great Schools platform, where do they go? Yeah, so we have the Great Schools platform website, which is greatschools.com.br for Brazil. And well, I'm on a social network, especially LinkedIn. If you, if you just shoot me a message, I'll be happy to connect. Great. Well, thank you so much, Bruno.